Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include FHA flood insurance, nerd wallets holding Lewis on borrower capacity and housing market fundamentals, and I have a turkey joke for you if you can make it to the end. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit richiemay.com. Yesterday, we learned that the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, published the Acceptance of Private Flood Insurance for FHA-Insured Mortgages Final Rule in the Federal Register. With today's publication, FHA will now accept private flood insurance policies where the borrower chooses to obtain a private policy instead of flood insurance available through the National Flood Insurance Program. This change applies to all FHA-insured single-family Title II mortgages, including home equity conversion mortgages, HECMs, and loans insured under FHA's Title I programs. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show NerdWallet's Holden Lewis to talk about borrower capacity and housing market fundamentals. He's a home and mortgage expert with NerdWallet and has covered the housing industry for more than two decades. He's, you know, kind of a whiz at breaking down topics ranging from arms to discount points. So I want to start with a two-part question. Why you think home prices will drop? And and I guess if you think that's kind of unilaterally across most metros in the U.S. or, or certain metros, uh, then why there won't be a housing crash, uh, even if houses housing prices do drop? Well, as far as house prices dropping, they're already falling in some metro areas, such as Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, Boise, maybe Austin. These are the markets where you know everyone is looking at right now, saying, "Okay, you know these zoomed up; they are due to fall," and and it looks like they really are falling. I don't know if that's going to happen all over the country. There might be a few holdouts, uh, especially in the Midwest, where there are places maybe prices just didn't zoom up. And so there's really not much reason for them to fall. Um, and and the, reason, the reason I expect prices to drop is because of the rise in mortgage rates. At the beginning of the year, you could get a 30-year mortgage at 3.25%. Last week, it was around 7%. We've had a huge decline down to like six and three quarters, maybe even six and a half percent this week. But you know, the bottom line is when mortgage rates went from 3.25 to seven in 10 months, that was the fastest rise since 1981. And when mortgage rates go up that fast, affordability takes a huge hit and home sales fall. And so you can expect a drop in home prices too. Okay, like let's say you can spend $1,900 a month for principal and interest. At three and a quarter percent, you could borrow $437,000. And at 7%, you can afford to borrow $286,000. So that's a loss in $151,000 in borrowing capacity. So what happens is if people are really, really determined to buy a house and this happens, 
they start shopping lower price ranges. And when they start shopping lower price ranges, well, you know, those lower priced houses are the ones that are going to sell. And so that brings down the median price of a house. Um, You know, it might not might not cut into one particular house's price or value a whole lot. But what it means is the more expensive your house, the less saleable it is. And why no crash ultimately? The definition of a crash is squishy. <laughs> but let's let's say, let's define it as a, a nationwide nominal price decline of 20% or more. Um, and then, you know, it happens along with other problems of the in the overall economy, like high unemployment. Um, that just doesn't seem like incredibly likely. I mean, you know, the supply of homes for sale is just going to remain lower than demand. Um, and so, and, and the reason for that is that homeowners are reluctant to sell at prices that are lower than they could have gotten just a year or two earlier. I mean, just think about it. You know, um, you know, in March you could have sold your house for five hundred fifty thousand, and then in November you're only going to be able to get four hundred ninety thousand for it. You might just say, "Ah, oh, you know what? I'm just going to hold off. You know, I don't need to move right now. I'm just going to wait." Uh, and, and for for prices to to bounce back, and so when enough people think that, when enough people keep their houses off the market uh, to wait for prices to go back, then there's just not a whole lot of room for prices to go down because there's not enough houses on the market uh, to meet the demand. And then there's also the issue of mortgage rate lock in. And that's also keeping houses off the market. And mortgage rate lock-in is the phenomenon where, let's say you have a 3% mortgage rate and you'd sort of like to move. But if that means giving up your 3% mortgage to get a 7% mortgage on the next house you buy, you just think, ah, okay, I'm just going to stick where I am. That, That difference in mortgage rate will just be too great to to make it worth moving. And so mortgage rate lock-in is keeping houses off the market. And that's another factor that I think will keep home prices from crashing. And then finally, there's just the whole mortgage underwriting picture. This is so unlike the housing boom of like 2004 to 2008, where you could get a mortgage just if you could fog a mirror, like literally like, okay, I exist. Um, uh, I'm not even going to document my income and my assets, but I promise to pay this mortgage. And they go, okay, fine. Here's a mortgage. Those days are long gone. You have to prove your income. You have to document your income. You, you have to show that you can afford that loan. And so there's just not going to be a lot of foreclosures caused by irresponsibility. And without without that adding to the um, to the inventory of for sale homes, see that's just another reason for for demand to to just remain above the supply. 
I joke that the old school mortgage industry before the financial crisis, you could say you made a quarter of a million dollars a year in a mariachi band. And uh, all you had to do was send in a photo of you and a sombrero to the underwriter and you were good to go. Back in, I think it was 2007, might have been 2006, I was attending a a mortgage convention. I think it was the Mortgage Bankers Association, and it was in Orlando. And one day I was sitting in a conference room, um, tapping away at my keyboard. And this cleaning lady walked up to me. She She hardly knew any English. And she explained that she and her husband were both from China. And they were both janitors at the um, convention center in Orlando that they owned three investment properties that they were renting out and they couldn't, they didn't have tenants for all of them. And she was worried that she was going to have to um, default on the loans. And, you know, I, I was like, okay, here's someone who's, who's an immigrant who doesn't know English well, who works as a janitor and owns three investment properties. It just, something, something went awry along the way. I mean, that, that was probably not a good mortgage investment, you know? Um, And, you know, I think about that conversation pretty frequently and just wonder what happened to her and her husband. You know, I fear that they ended up losing those investment homes. With rates rising so dramatically this year, both originators and borrowers are kind of having to get creative to make deals happen. When should you take a mortgage loan incentive like a rate buy down or, or get a product like an arm or even an interest only loan? Really complicated question. First of all, let me explain what a buy down is because they were popular in the early 80s to the early 90s, and they've really fallen away, but they're coming back. So what a rate buy-down is, is let's say you get a mortgage at 7%. You might get what's called a 2-1 buy-down, which means that for the first year you pay, your mortgage payment is based on 5% rate. And then in the second year, it's based on a 6% rate. And then after that, your full 7% rate. Now, who pays for that? Usually it's the seller or the home builder. And they just literally, they they take the difference, you know, they figure out what the difference is um, in your payments and what the bank is actually going to be ending up collecting. And they put that money in um, an account. And every month, the mortgage servicer draws that difference. So the mortgage servicer always gets a payment based on a 7% rate. It's just that the seller is paying, is subsidizing that payment. For the first one or two or even three years. So buy downs, they they seem to be coming back. And um, you know, a, a rate buy down is a good option if as a seller you're stuck at the price and um the, the buyer is still demanding some kind of concession. You know, with a rate buy down, the seller can hold the line on the price but contribute to the mortgage payments for one to three years. And that way they can say, hey, <clears throat> you know, I didn't I didn't cut the price. You know, you can say to your neighbors, I didn't cut the price when I sold the house in your neighborhood. <laughs> and, you know, your neighbors don't have to know that you had that concession on the backside. An arm, you know, an arm is appropriate for someone who's pretty sure 
that they'll sell within five to seven years. <clears throat> I'm just not, I'm not positive that people are going to be able to refinance into a lower rate in five to seven years. I mean, I think it's fairly likely, but it's not a slam dunk guarantee. So, you know, if you get a five-year or seven-year arm, um, it might be, you know, it, well, let me back up. If you think that you're going to sell within, say, five to seven years, then a five or seven-year arm might be a really good, appropriate choice. You might be able to refinance in the intervening time. There's no guarantee. But uh, if you think you're going to sell in just a few years, you you might just be able to sell it before you hit your first um, rate adjustment. There's one other option, another option to talk about, which is buying points for someone. Like, say you're a seller. And you can pay discount points for on the buyer's mortgage. Um, and, you know, that might be a good deal for a buyer who is confident that they're going to be in the home for at least six or seven years and preferably significantly longer than that because points, um, you know, points pay for themselves over time. And it's usually about a six or seven year time frame. I have a friend who swears by his interest only loan. Can you explain the the economics of considering that option? Oh boy, I I just don't think that interest-only loans are for regular people. They're for people who are sure that they'll sell the home before the principal payments kick in. And, you know, they need to be on sound financial footing on top of that. So, you know, that, that, that makes sense for borrowers who are confident they can get a higher return on their capital than the interest rate on the mortgage. So let's say the interest rate is 7%. Are you sure you can get a better return than that on your investments, especially when you take the mortgage interest rate deduction into account? Um, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's an option for people in that situation and maybe for people who are really confident that their income is going to increase in just a few years. So people who are just finishing um, their their medical residency, for example, and are about to you know go into private practice. Those folks, maybe it's worth the risk of getting an interest only loan. But you know you got to keep in mind that if you get an interest only mortgage, that there's always the possibility that house prices will go down and that you'll you you could be, impelled to sell the house at a loss. And with an interest-only loan, you have not paid any equity into that. You haven't built equity uh, in the meantime. And then one final thing. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm just I feel I just feel like interest-only loans are just so risky. And and one of the reasons is that when you start paying back principal, it's in a compressed time frame. Let's say you let's say you have an interest-only loan for 10 years. <clears throat> and when you um, you know, you finally start paying the principal, well, you have to pay off that principal over a 20-year period instead of a 30-year period. And that means that that first payment 
on your 11th year is going to be a big jump from the last payment of that 10th year because you're compressing the the principal payments over 20 years instead of 10 of of 30 so it's just going to be a really really big jump now i mean how many people keep an interest only loan past 10 years probably not a whole lot but hey you know it's a possibility I know you said earlier in this interview that people are becoming reluctant to sell because they're locked into low rates. But for those that do decide to sell, what's some advice for selling a home and what is turning into a buyer's market? All markets are local. In one place, you it still might be a strong um, seller's market. But in another place, it might already be a buyer's market. Places like, say, Boise, where the prices are already going down. Um, but you know, the smart thing to do is to assume that you're no longer in a strong buyer's market. You know, the the kind with the multiple offers and the buyers who are waiving inspections, like we had just like ten months ago. Um, so, I mean, let's just say it's no longer that kind of market where, as a seller, you can essentially choose which buyer you prefer. Um, so if that's the case, then the house needs to be ready to move in. It needs to be good looking from the curb, painted, well landscaped, that kind of thing. And all the systems need to be working. And none of them need to be in the last couple of years of their useful life. You know, if you have a furnace that, you know, could be expected to last 25 years and the furnace is 23 years old, and a seller might really balk at that um, and just kind of wonder why you didn't go ahead and replace the furnace if you're going to sell the home. Um, so there's that. And then as far as pricing, I ran into a real estate saying a couple of weeks ago that really stuck with me. And the saying goes like this, the seller who cuts first cuts least. And, um, you know, I, I assume that's true. You know, in, in a market like this, if you're in a market where the house prices are starting to fall, if you're pretty aggressive about cutting that price before your neighbors do, you're probably going to um, have to cut it less than your neighbors will end up cutting it, and you'll sell the home faster. Um, so it's it's really a good idea to pay attention to what the real estate agent says, and to heed that advice, especially if it's advice, then you really, really hate to hear. You know, if if you're resisting it, then there might be a good reason that you're resisting it, and it just might be psychological. So what it comes down to is, if house prices are going down, don't expect to get the price that you would have gotten six months ago. Just accept reality, and if the house doesn't sell within the first couple of weeks. It's probably a good idea to go ahead and cut and cut enough to hurt you psychologically, but to please buyers out there and to get some offers. And then um, lastly, just prepare to make concessions. Things like paying some of the buyer's closing costs or paying for an interest rate buy down. Um, you know, as, as we get more and more into less of a seller's market and more of a buyer's market, you're just going to have to see 
you're going to see sellers making more of these concessions. Holden, I got to say, I really enjoyed this today. Thanks for making the time for me. Hey, you're welcome. Thanksgiving week is always slow with many traders and other staff away from their desks. Tomorrow will be the big day of the week with durable goods, new home sales, consumer sentiment, and the FOMC minutes. Markets will be closed on Thursday, and the bond market will also close early on Friday. There was little news of note yesterday, though Atlanta Fed President Bostich said that he is ready to slow the pace of rate hikes, and that an additional 75 to 100 basis points of tightening would likely be sufficient. Recently lower than expected producer prices were encouraging news for the markets last week as participants look for the Fed to slow the pace of rate hikes at the December FOMC meeting. Consumer and producer inflation data continuing a downward trend may be enough to warrant a 50 basis point hike versus another 75 basis point increase to the Fed funds rate. Despite increasing interest rates, consumers turned to credit card spending to support a stronger than expected 1.3% increase in retail sales during October. Resilient consumer spending has even shifted the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now forecast for the fourth quarter from an initial estimate of 3.1 in October to 4.2 as of a couple days ago here in November. But the market is forecasting a recession toward the second half of 2023 as the current momentum is expected to slow. New single-family construction continues to contract as housing starts and permits are significantly off recent highs. Additionally, the NHB Housing Market Index has seen 11 consecutive months of decline and is currently at its lowest level since April 2020. Today's calendar, like yesterday's, is heavy on supply and light on data. Treasury will conclude the month-end auctions with $22 billion reopened two-year FRNs, then $35 billion of seven-year notes. Economic releases consist of Philadelphia Fed Non-Manufacturing Indexes for November and Richmond Fed Manufacturing and Services Indexes for November. Fed appearances for the week conclude after Cleveland Fed's Mester, St. Louis's Bullard, and Kansas City's George deliver remarks. We begin the day with agency MBS prices better by an eighth and the 10 yielding 3.80 after closing yesterday at 3.83%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. A turkey walks into a bar, and the bartender asks, What are you? The turkey replies, I'm a wild turkey. <laughs> Wait, no. <laughs> gobble, gobble. <laughs> the bartender chuckles and replies, Hey, we have a drink named after you. The wild turkey, incredulous, asks, You have a drink named Kevin? Oh, that's a classic. Classic, classic. <laughs> Thanks again to Richie May a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit richiemay.com. Questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities? Send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.